Hi everyone and welcome to the Tyndall Talks, which is the Tyndall Center's official podcast. I'm Renee from the Tyndall Center at the University of East Anglia. And actually, before we start our episode today, I'd like to thank our listeners from all over the world because today we've reached a thousand streams and we're really happy that we have this much interest and we promise to give you more episodes that untangle climate science, climate policies, and the latest climate debates. And speaking of which, today we are going to talk about the psychology of climate change. How do we change people's behaviors in line with sustainability? Do individual actions matter? And if it does, what actions can we do in our everyday lives to contribute to a low-carbon future? So today we have two guests for this episode, Professor Lorraine Whitmarsh of the University of Bath and Stuart Capstick of Cardiff University. They are also both leading the Center for Climate Change and Social Transformations, or CAST, which is a sister center of the Tyndall Center. So, hi Lorraine and Stuart, welcome to the Tyndall Talks. Hi Renee, good to be here. Hi Renee, good to be here as well. Good, thank you for coming today. And I think before we go into the detail of, you know, the whole science behind the psychology of climate change, let's allow the listeners to get to know you a little bit more and the work that you do at CAST. So maybe we can start with Lorraine, introduce yourself. Uh, Sure, yeah, I'm Lorraine Whitmarsh. I'm a professor of environmental psychology at the University of Bath and director of CAST. CAST is a research centre that's funded for five years by the Economic and Social Research Council. Uh, We're about two years in at the moment. We're a group of several universities and a charity called Climate Outreach. And we're looking at the role that people play in tackling climate change. Hello, I'm uh, Dr. Stuart Capstick. Um, So I'm Deputy Director of the Centre for Climate Change and Social Transformation, the CAST Centre. it's interesting to hear you describe it, Renee, as a sister centre of the Tyndall Centre. Um, I tend to describe it as a sort of child of Tyndall in as much <laughs> as Tyndall came first. And, you know, a lot of us involved in Tyndall then um, helped set up the cast centre. But um, uh, it's it's a it's a happy family, however you describe it. Um, so my background is in uh, environmental psychology as well. Um, and so I've done a lot of work on public understanding, public perceptions of climate change. Uh, and I'm increasingly interested in uh, being involved in sort of practical interventions and trials on the ground of, of one sort or another, which I um, lead on in the CAST Centre. Right. Thanks, both of you. I think we have a lot of questions, actually, that we get through Facebook or Twitter asking about, you know, practical ways on how, what to do in their lives to help save the planet, to help stop global warming. And there's always this debate between system change and individual change. So what role does the individual play at eight tons of carbon dioxide each year in the UK versus 35 gigatons of carbon dioxide globally? So studies show that actually both changes do matter, but a lot of people sometimes feel defeated at the enormity of the problem. And personally, I do have friends who try to be more sustainable with their lifestyle, but sometimes they think, is this really going anywhere? Am I really helping 
change something? And how much agency do we have in making the planet better? So is there really an impact if we change our individual lifestyles and actions? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a really um, big um, uh, and important question. First of all, I, I think it, I'd say it's it's perfectly um, normal and understandable, I think, to feel overwhelmed by this problem, whether we're thinking about our kind of role as individuals in it or, or in general, you know, climate change is uh, a, a huge, massive, troubling, complex um, problem. So that, that, that's that's perfectly normal response to have. Um, but I, in terms of kind of the relevance of our individual choices and, and agency we might have, um, Yes, yes, on the one hand, no one person, who, whoever they are, however powerful they are, um, can turn this round on their own. But for me, I think the, the key thing is to recognise that each person, each of us can be part of the response to tackling climate change. I also think, um, you know, when we get in these into these debates about individual and versus system change and so on, I, I think it can be a bit unhelpful because I, I I don't think we're really individuals at all. I mean, of course, we all uh, have our own um, um, brains and physical bodies and all the rest of it, but but we are we're not isolated individuals. We're connected to other people. We make up the society and culture that we're in. It's not you know it's not something outside of us. And so I think you know that we're very extremely social creatures, and that's how we should see our part um, in tackling uh, in tackling climate change. So you know, it, with reference to that the eight ton footprint of individuals versus the 35 gigaton really that that 35 gigatons is an outcome of all of all of those people uh, on the planet um, some of us more than others of course um, and so that's how I would think about it the other thing that I think is um, kind of interesting about this question and how often it sort of pops up and you know I, I often find myself sort of drawn into discussions and debates on the individual system attention. Um, I, I think it's curious it's so sort of prevalent because we, we don't, you know, we don't see ourselves as um, irrelevant in, in other areas of life, you know. So in, in other areas of life, we, we each of us have kind of negligible in, influence on all sorts of things in, in the broad sweep of history, if you like. Um, but we, we don't, you know, generally sort of give in to despair and, and curl up in a ball on the floor and say, you know, what can I do in the in the grand scheme of things? So, you know, we I think just as in other areas of life where we we kind of put that to one side and get on with it and recognise the responsibilities, it, it's important to do that um, with, with climate change, too. Um, to, just to, to finish on a kind of short example, I think, um, you know, one, one thing that um, COVID has, has shown is that we are capable of recognizing our individual responsibilities to the sort of collective health of our communities and, and nation and you know it would if someone said well you know i'm just one individual who cares whether i wear a mask or wash my hands you'd, you'd sound you'd seem pretty selfish wouldn't you and and so i think you know that's that sort of sense of ourselves as individuals within that bigger whole i think is in, important here as well i think it's kind of relieving to know that you know even if we do just little bits of things in our lives and change little things in our lives it can amount to something bigger especially if lots more people do it and so i think based on on that question um what part of our lives can we change and you know what practical things can we do what areas where can we change our lifestyle is it in the way we shop 
or maybe the way we live at home, maybe the food we eat, etc. Lorraine, maybe? Yeah, I, I think there's, to be honest, there's, there's action that we can take across every single area of our lives to tackle climate change. I mean, some of the direct things we could do are uh, in relation to some of the things you just said around what we buy, how we travel, how we use energy in the home. So, you know, uh, using cars less, flying less, uh, eating less meat and dairy, uh, just consuming less in general, uh, saving energy at home. All of those things can directly reduce our carbon footprint. But I think we often forget about all of the other roles that we play. So we're not only consumers. Um, that is an important role we play. But we're also citizens, so we can vote for uh, parties who are taking bold action on climate change. We can, you know, we can lobby lobby groups. We can we can protest. We can take all sorts of direct political action. And as well, often we are um, employees, or we we have a we have a professional role. And there may be things that we can do within the workplace or within our professional context that can actually maybe be quite significant in the impact it has on climate change. Some, some people, if they're managers, for example, might be able to implement policies or influence behavior of, of a lot of people um, that they work with. So I think it's really important to sort of define the role of behavior change as broadly as we can and think about the whole range of different things that we can do. Thank you, Lorraine. And it seems like it's true. Sometimes we forget that we play different roles in society. We play different roles. Like you said, like we can be consumers, we can be citizens, we can be employees, and we can impact, I guess, different facets of where we are, the space we occupy, the spaces we occupy. And but some for some people, I think there's this kind of difficulty to change their lifestyle, to change their behaviors, partly maybe because um, they've been used to what they've been doing, how they've been living for years. Um, so what are the usual barriers for people in changing their lifestyles? And what in turn are the ways to overcome these barriers? Yeah, we, we've um, tried to explore the barriers that people face because we, we know, as you say, most people actually are really concerned about climate change and have some often good intentions to take action to reduce their carbon footprint. Uh, but in reality, they don't always actually work out. They don't always necessarily take those actions. And that can be sometimes for quite simple uh, informational reasons. Maybe they don't know the most effective thing that they can do to tackle climate change. So we know, for example, that actually um, there isn't a very widespread understanding of the role that diets play in causing climate change and that actually if we eat less red meat and dairy we'd significantly cut our carbon emissions from food um so that's something we could do is to actually just explain more clearly that the, the most effective things people can do um but we know that giving people information alone often isn't enough to change their behavior um, it's not a particularly effective behavior change tool so what we need to do is to address those wider barriers that people often talk about, which are, you know, it's too difficult, it's too expensive, it's inconvenient, it, it's, it's not a very attractive option, it's not a normal thing for people to do, and so on. So we need, to, we need to make it easier and more convenient, we need to make it cheaper, we need to make it normal, actually, so that people just think, well, this is what everybody else is doing, I'm going to um, do that as well, because we know that, that what other people do 
does actually really strongly shape what we do as individuals. So that includes a whole range of sorts of measures that um, governments and businesses and others can put in place. So they can make low carbon products cheaper uh, than high carbon alternatives. They can regulate to maybe remove some of the most um, polluting products on, on the market. Um, they can make low carbon travel much, e much easier and more attractive than high carbon alternatives. So for example, reallocating road space away from cars to um, walking and cycling so that there's more space for us to walk and cycle, which means, means that it's safer and easier. And because there are fewer, there's less road space for cars, it means it's less uh, convenient to, to travel by car as well. So things like that, reconfigure, reconfiguring the built environment um, is a really important aspect of that as well. So there's a lot of things that we can do and particularly government can do to um, make low carbon behaviours easier, more attractive and so on. Thank you. Stuart, did you want to add something to that? Um, I mean, in terms of um, in terms of barriers, I, I guess that they there is such a such a range, really. I mean, there's been quite a number of um, academic papers now, including um, work that the rain was involved with um, uh, back in back in 2007. I think your your barriers paper um, was published, and again, it's a little bit like the. Um, the point about that sort of climate change being a big overwhelming problem that there, there are many barriers ranging from our kind of our, the ancient brain that we're stuck with that isn't very good at dealing with the, such a, a complex problem all the way through the to the sort of um the physical practical limits on how we you know how we have to get by a, in a day-to-day -day way so for, for some people if you you know if you're very active you live near a cycle lane you work down the road it could be quite easy um to, to actively travel for other people um, those things can be um, extremely difficult. I mean, I think that Lorraine made a good point about how sort of overcoming these barriers is often, you know, it needs to be done at that more structural level to, to sort of, for example, enable active travel. But, I, you know, coming back to the point of, of what individuals can do, I think, again, we're, you know, it, it's helpful to think that Part of our role in in taking individual action is to enable those structural changes. So, to, to give an example, um, my kids go to um, the primary school up the road. It's very frustrating, as always cars idling, blocking the road. It's not safe, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and absolutely, we want you know many of us want a, a school street. We want action to be taken, and so it needs that structural solution. But I see my um, part in that together with other people as trying to bring about that sort of micro uh, structural change. So I guess coming back to, to the roles we have and the things we can do, it's finding ways to, to, to push for that uh, broader change, frustrating as it may be. Thank you for that, Stuart. Um, and I guess, as, as you said earlier, you know, it's the role of the institution in enabling behavior change is very, very important. Um, and I guess I'm curious to know, based on your research, um, what is the easiest and most difficult lifestyle, lifestyle or behavioral change for people? And does it change in context? Like, for example, is it different for people who live um, 
for example, by the coast versus people who live more inland? Um, is it different for people who live, for example, in developing countries versus developed countries? Shall I make a, a comment on that? I'm, I'm happy to do that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, it, it, of course, it will vary a, a lot, um, depending on where you live in the world, what your, what your circumstances are. So um, where I live in the UK, many people are, to a greater or lesser extent, dependent on their cars. And for some people, that, you know, lack, it, it, it's, it's questionable, you know, it, it, some people could frankly just get out of their cars with some effort. But for some people, if you live in a rural area, you may have very little option um, in terms of getting to work and, and your food. So I, I suppose the most difficult um, uh, behaviour changes are those that we don't have much choice over because of our circumstances. But I think also, you know, many things which are at a personal level are sort of habits, but at more, more broadly are sort of culturally ingrained, if you like, are also very difficult to overcome. So for for many people, um, and there's research from, from cast sort of pointing to this, um, sort of eating less meat or giving up meat altogether is a really hard one. You know, on the face of it, that's something that, you know, if, if we if we have the, the finances and, and the, you know, the, the shops available, we could um, quit meat, become vegans overnight. But I think because it's so much part of the culture for many people of, of the way we've grown up, that's hard um, as well. I think something else that's um, something else that's to say to mention another sort of difficult one, the, sort of breaking the taboo of of sort of silence and awkwardness of talking about climate change can be really hard. You know, I think many people are concerned about this topic, but it's it's actually quite often toe curlingly awkward to bring up in in conversation with, you know, if you're not talking to to specialists and or, or, or close friends. So I think it, it's hard to um, break that taboo. Um, so um, yeah, I, I think one thing that's perhaps maybe easier than we might think is something that Lorraine's uh, alluded to already and and that I sort of touched on, which I think is trying to find ways to be active however you can and, and whatever's appropriate to your your circumstances and um, that might be for some people protesting or, or even civil disobedience but it, it's worth reflecting I think on saying well how can I how can I make a difference in my own context my own workplace my family my community um, you know who can I have a word with can I write an email to my local representatives you know how long would it take you know it would only take a couple of minutes for anyone to, to to write to their local representatives and I, and I think we probably don't do enough of that I mean there's research showing that one of the reasons that um, MPs and uh, sort of members of parliament in the UK have been reluctant to push climate change to the forefront is because they haven't felt that there is that broader public pressure to do so so let's let's try and build that public pressure with 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 um, emails and however else we can do it I do have a follow-up question, which either you or Lorraine could answer. Because um, you mentioned earlier about maybe communicating better um, and bringing up difficult topics. Like for your, your example earlier was, for example, vegetarianism or veganism and eating less red meat, right? Some of the, uh, the messages that are on social media are uh, usually using emotions like guilt like guilting people into eating meat um saying you know 
the climate change um, is driven by meat eaters, for example. And sometimes this conversations, this kind of messages don't help. Um, and so what do you think, how are the ways could we communicate a behavior change better so that it becomes more positive and people don't become defensive about the way they act or behave currently? We've definitely found that actually climate change information can be quite threatening in some ways for, for, for different groups and, and in different ways, um, particularly if the message is what you're doing is wrong or what you believe in is wrong. Um, and I, I, it is difficult for anybody to hear a message like that. And so I think even though it is the case that well, pretty much all of us have to change our behaviour in some ways, uh, at least, um, that we can still frame that message of, of behaviour change in ways that, that are, are less kind of maybe perceived as threatening. Um, and so we, instead of framing it as what you're doing is wrong and making people feel guilty, we can talk about the benefits of taking an alternative action. And so in the case of, for example, getting out of your car and walking and cycling, there are huge health benefits to doing that. There are also financial benefits often to doing that. Um, and, you know, for, for people with children, as Stuart's mentioned, you know, local schools, I think talking about the benefits to children's quality of life, to their health, um, to their safety on the road, um, as well as to the world that they're going to be inheriting in, in the future. I think we can really talk about things that actually resonate with people and that they value. And in doing so, we can hopefully appeal to what they do care about and overcome some of those defensive reactions that they might um, show if you talk about what you're doing is wrong as the, as, the, as the way in. So I think, yeah, definitely framing it as a more kind of positive um, message can help. Thank you, Lorraine. I think that's very helpful, especially for those who campaign uh, for certain things and having the right messages to come across uh, to people who we who we want to change actions or behaviors. And you were mentioning earlier about benefits. So what are the benefits to an individual or family of a sustainable lifestyle? Yeah, I think I, I, I touched on health. So I think health um, it, it is one of the, the big co-benefits, as we call it, the additional benefits to taking climate action. Um, so a plant-based diet, so cutting out um, meat and dairy, is, is much better for health. It can reduce various risks of cancers and other sorts of diseases. Um, similarly, taking active forms of travel, in other words, walking and cycling, can significantly improve health in various ways. And it's also been shown to improve mental health. Um, uh, cutting, uh, reducing the number of cars on the road also, of course, improves air quality and reduces the number of accidents. So there's a sort of wider health benefit for, for doing that. Um, it's not only health benefits, there are also financial benefits. So often if you save energy at home or if you buy less stuff, um, you can save money. Um, and if you even implement some of these more sort of structural measures, if you put in insulation in your home, that might be a, a, a large cost initially, but in the longer run, you would save money. Um, and then there, I guess there, there might be other sorts of benefits around um, social benefits. So if you're, um, if you're taking action with a community to do something about climate change, you might make um, social, uh, strengthen social relationships and improve kind of community outcomes. 
Um, and also we've talked about kind of family. So, I mean, just direct benefits to, to, to the next generation as well, I think, of taking climate change action, um, as well as people in other countries. So I think depending on how you draw the boundaries of benefits, I mean, if you if you feel better about the fact that you're, that you're reducing your impact on the climate because it improves the quality of life of people in other countries right here and now, as well as future generations, that, that, that might um, make people feel better as well. Thank you. Stuart, did you have anything to add to that? I mean, just just briefly, I suppose um, that, uh, you know, I think acting on climate change in one way or another, in other, whatever, one way or another can be good for, for our well-being for the reasons that Lorraine's alluded to. I, I think most of us are not bad people. We, you know, we, we're concerned about these issues. We we don't want to be causing, causing harm. And I, so I think there is something quite um, affirming about about trying to take action on climate change, you know, having that reassuring uh, knowledge that you're, you know, you're you're doing what you can, you're you're not wrecking, you're you're minimising your impact on the world and and taking action for people you care about, your family, for for other people in the world. So I, I, whilst you know, whilst sometimes this 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 topic can be wrapped up with awkwardness or, or, or guilt as much from how I think we feel ourselves about things as, as, as any messaging you know actually that the converse taking action can can be a be a relief and a positive thing to do. I always like to ask uh, the last question as something that our listeners can do in their own houses in their own lifestyles so any words of wisdom for our listeners who might be wanting to become more sustainable but aren't quite sure how? Yeah, sure. I'll go first. Um, so I, yeah, I don't know about any. Well, I wouldn't want to say I, I can offer words of wisdom, um, but a couple of reflections anyway. And um, I think one is that there are a lot of ways that we can engage with this topic. Some of those might be a practical choice you can take now. Um, what you're going to have the, for your dinner, <laughs> um, I, but other ways, other things are less um, measurable, and they are about sort of maintaining that engagement and maintaining that sort of practical action over time and and to come back to what we were talking about at, at the start I, I think let we shouldn't think of our actions as just being individual our, our individual carbon footprint it, it does matter but it's only part of the story and, and what's perhaps more important is is how what we do uh, is part of changing what's normal changing um, what's expected desirable and the influence we might have on on other people um and so you know just to give a, a quick anecdote um sort of personally i haven't flown anywhere for about six or, or seven years now um and although i i you know i try not to be um sort of preachy or holier than thou about that i will sometimes mention it to friends or whatever and uh, you know um for example that it's possible to get to europe for example from the uk without flying sometimes i might gently challenge people on on things and there has, to my surprise, been several instances over the years where, where people I know who previously would have just jumped on a plane have said, you know, oh, actually, you know, because of what we talked about, I'm going to get the train um, to, to my holiday this year or someone else got the ferry to Portugal. Now, I don't have any special powers of persuasion, but I think this sort of thing illustrates that what we choose to do, how we can take action in our lives does affect other people and can affect those those wider patterns. So, um, yeah, we're all part of this problem together and we all have to deal with it together. I, I can't add too much to that. That was a brilliant response, actually. Um, 
But I think, you know, there's loads of information resources on the web. The Grantham Institute has a, this is my favorite personal resources. Uh, they have a, the top nine things that you can do to tackle climate change. And so they're really practical things uh, like cut back on flying, leave the car at home, eat less meat and dairy. Um, and some things maybe that you wouldn't necessarily think of um, around kind of, you know, investing your money wisely actually. So, so we, we didn't mention this, but one of the roles that, that we have is as an investor. So think about your pension, think about um, where your bank account is or your credit card is. Are they, are they investing in fossil fuels are they, or are they actually um, investing in ethical and, and green uh, funds for you? Um, and then there's the sort of things that, that Stuart's mentioned around have a conversation with people around you about climate change and say you know what do you think we could do you know how about we do this and just talk, talking to other people breaks this this norm of silence around climate change and actually shows that low carbon living isn't weird it's actually really been beneficial in loads of ways so talk about the financial savings that you've had from insulating your home talk talk about how much weight you've lost by walking to work instead of driving all those good things people really want to hear those things so um yeah don't be afraid to talk about those benefits thank you lorraine and Stuart. it was a really good episode and thank you for being our guest today for this episode of the Tindal talks and i guess we did learn a lot of things from knowing that you know we have different roles to play and we can influence different spaces we're at the benefits um, of having a sustainable lifestyle uh, having positive messages and uh, telling these stories these messages to other people so i hope our listeners were inspired to start living a more sustainable lifestyle and as we said in this episode our little actions count in creating a better future for our planet thank you and see you again in our next episode